everyone, welcome to the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Hadi. I'm Isa. Uh, this week, actually this month, <laughs> we don't actually have that many Hollywood blockbusters to talk about. We've kind of stayed away from cinema mm-hmm. for the most part. Yep. Um, outside of some, you know, some Japanese imports like Shin Ultraman that we're excited to talk about. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. mostly we'll be focused on the great white world of TV here. And... There are lots of great returning seasons that I am enthralled by. Um, this is probably going to be one of the best-reviewed uh, genre equalities ever. It's just going to sound like we're just wanking off over a bunch of <laughs> our main topics. But a lot of them are really, really great. Yeah. Um, we have the returning What We Do in the Shadows on FX or on Disney+, Plus if you watch in Singapore. Um, Harley Quinn is back for season 3 mm-hmm. uh, over on HBO or HBO Max if you're in the U.S., Primal is back for season two on Adult Swim. Uh, I'm eager to talk about Marcel, the show, the shoes on mm. the movie um, released by A24 uh, out on VOD right now. That one is by far my favorite of, uh, of the things that we're talking about this month. Mm-hmm. But nice. I mean, lots of good stuff as well, uh, like Shin Ultraman. Isa is back with Anime Corner, yeah. talking about a bunch of great returning anime mm-hmm. and a lot of good new ones as well. Um, Plus, right at the end, me and Hardy going to be doing a little retrospective oh, hey. uh, <laughs> of the cult classic space opera Babylon 5, yeah. trying to kind of rekindle our uh, the era in the 90s when we first got into sci-fi. Yeah. And I think Babylon 5 was one of the key components of what made our fandom so uh, vigorous. Like, it was one of the best shows out there yes. at, at that time, yeah. alongside TNG and Farscape and all of mm-hmm. that. Uh, but let's begin with what we do in the shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, when we last left the Staten Island mansion uh, of what we do in the shadows in season three, <laughs> uh, Nandor had just departed for his quote-unquote eat, pray, love, P-R-E-Y, <laughs> a tour of uh, self-discovery. Um, Naja left to England in a wooden crate to, uh, to join the Worldwide Vampiric Council. Mm-hmm. And Guillermo uh, in Unwitting Toe, surprisingly. (laughs) Uh, Laszlo, for his part, chose to stay behind because the dead body of Colin Robinson was reborn into a new childlike form which he had to take care of. Oh no. Cut to a year later in season four. And all this amazing, wide potential growth and momentum is instantly, (laughs) immediately, (laughs) and hilariously undercut because... Uh, all Nandor got from his tour was a friendship with a nice family from Wisconsin yep. who wrote the reels with him. Yeah. Uh, Naja found herself bored with council committees and so she bailed. <laughs> uh, Gizmo, robbed of the chance to become a vampire, has been shipped back to Staten Island mm-hmm. uh, and they all come back to a decrepit mansion with Laszlo playing daddy and eventual music manager to the Colin Robinson baby which he calls Boy. Uh... Desperate to ensure that boy doesn't end up as boring as his previous self. Oh, no. So um, within five minutes of season four, they're back at square one, mm-hmm. stuck with each other as they keep trying to eke out some meaning for themselves in their eternal vampiric life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what we do in the shadows over the past four seasons has carried its considerable charm uh, on the back of its deadpan jokes, vibrant cast, and a deceptively fresh take on the vampiric horror comedy. And in season four, I find that the dynamic between Nandor and Guillermo 
is almost reversed from their first few episodes sure. because Nando lets himself be vulnerable, especially now that he's on a search for a new wife to share his life with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nando is desperate for love, so he seeks out a jinn who bring back his 37 dead wives, <laughs> but uh, he's unprepared for the demanding shitstorm that will ensue. Uh, and to compensate, he hilariously misuses his very many wishes for the most trivial things. 54 wishes for the most trivial things. Uh, Guillermo, for his part, is looking out for himself more. Uh, at one point, Guillermo gets roped into a familiar fight at a secret supernatural bazaar where he beats up Nando. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets a boyfriend who Nando, clo- who Nando clones. That's so weird. Uh, um, he begins embezzling money from his vampire masters. That's uh, even Nadja is working on herself when she starts her own vampire nightclub, just like in Blade. Yeah. She gushes. Yeah. She gushes, right? <laughs> the uh, blood sprinklers. It's uh, it's shallow to be sure, <laughs> but it's uh, Nadja's way of forging her own path after her vampire council ladder climbing is drowned, or at least drowns her in bureaucracy. Um, hilariously, the opening night of Nadja's club hits some snacks when her A-lister headliner, vampire rappy, rapper Richie Suck, uh, LOL, uh, has some second thoughts due to his manipulative manager. Mm-hmm. And the club begins e- attracting even more human celebrities and guests like Sofia Coppola, Aww. Jim Jarmusch, the lead singer of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it kind of takes off in the middle of the season. And Club promoter Nadja is amazing. But in my opinion, season four's biggest triumph is what it does to Laszlo. (laughs) And in a more literal sense, Colin Robinson. Mm -hmm. Uh, Matt Berry has long been one of the show's secret weapons with that one-of-a-kind voice. Um, And an uncanny combination of elongated syllables and a theatrical English accent. Mm -hmm. Uh, This season, he's tasked himself with forging the destiny of baby Colin showing a kind of softness we haven't seen in the character all series. It's still funny, of course, mm-hmm. not the least of which because the subject of his attention is a creepy hell child with the actor Mark Proctor's head pasted <laughs> on. It's kind of horrifying and hilarious it's and so weird. weirdly adorable sometimes. Yeah. Um, boy Colin is not a psychic vampire or emotional vampire yet, but he's still a rapidly growing babe who yammers on about Legos and musical theatre trivia, and yet Laszlo's journey to shape the boy uh, and maybe even accept some of his quirks, it's oddly sweet, even if it ends up involving art heists or turning him into a tap-dancing child star (laughs) who sings 1930s show tunes. Um, You know, plus that episode where they tried to hypnotize a a private school headmaster (laughs) into accepting (laughs) That was so weird. That was so weird. Hands down, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. All of this, I think, have combined to lend uh, season four of what we do in the shadows to be, in my opinion, the strongest season of the show yet. Mm. Uh, Let's begin with you, Hardy. Have you caught up with what we do in the shadows season four? And what do you think? Yes, I think it's, uh, I agree with you. It's one of the, it is the strongest season of the four. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that they played with uh, concepts and um, they, they played with genres as well. Mm-hmm. You know that uh, I think one of the highlights was that reality TV episode, uh, <laughs> the Property Brothers yeah, parody, the Property Brothers <laughs> yeah. House Flippers kind of parody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was a brilliant episode. You know. Um, yep. Apart from that, I love the 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 continual development of the relationships between the characters. Um, mm. Gizmo, right? In season uh, one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's so different from the person he was, you know, four seasons ago. Yeah. There's this confidence mm. that he's found in himself, which is really, really, uh, and like you know, when he embezzles the money from the club, 
Like how brazen <laughs> is that? You know, and he's like <laughs> just bawling out. <laughs> but he deserves yeah. it. I mean, he's been underpaid the whole like the, the past like how many years yeah. he, has he been with the, 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 the vampires? Uh, 13. 13, right? Yeah, he's been... He's a whole hold out life. Exactly. So severely underpaid for 13 years. So yeah, when when we as viewers see him bawling out, we kind of like respect that, lah, you know? I mean, Nadia was embezzling too. Yes, right? exactly. so the the clock's failure wasn't all his fault. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. that. Nadia gave the bookkeeping to, to Gizmo and, and Guillermo and, and in the end, he was taking so much money away. Brilliant, like brilliantly done. like Because he knows the, the ignorance of the vampires, lah, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a, and I like that episode when Nadia actually met the family. Oh my yep. god, yeah, that was, that was <laughs> a good episode. I knew that. The that almost family, yeah, yeah. That was brilliantly done again. Like all these kind of things that we have never seen and how they expanded the world again. Like, you know, uh, yep. and, and and at the end of the day, this is a very a very powerful um, uh, comedy about, you know, just roommates, like, just getting along. Like. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah. So, yeah, kudos to this season. I think it was one of the best. Uh, that Colin Robinson storyline was was perfectly executed. I mean, it was the long arc, right? Throughout the entire 10 episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that final reveal was so beautifully done. Like, like, why was he knocking on the stupid wall this whole time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Again, um, yeah, kudos on how they, they, they tied everything up, uh, all the loose ends and all that stuff. Uh, I just hope that they do repair the house uh, now that oh, they are now on the stages of repairing the house because Colin Robinson has taken over, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So sorry. Spoiler alert. Colin Robinson. Yeah. Um. Yes. I mean, since the spoiler is out there, of course. Um. The return of Colin Robinson was predicated by a throwaway line by Guillermo, who casually mentions that don't you feel our life is like a sitcom? We just sort of reset every <laughs> once in a while. Yeah. Every day. Um. Yeah. Only for Colin Robinson to come back to life uh, eventually. Um. Yeah. What about you, Isa? What do you think about season four? Oh man. Uh. I don't think we've had a, a poor season of uh, what we do in the shadow so yeah. far. Maybe season one is the weakest, but it wasn't poor by any means. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, I, I believe so. I think like it goes from strength to strength because mm. we are so invested in the characters and whatever <laughs> shenanigans they get up to. I love, love, love the fact that at the end of... like, I, I want to re-watch like, the last couple of episodes of season three just to refresh myself of what was going on. Yeah. So going into season four, I was just like, really, guys? You're going to undermine all of that? For like just reason. straight up, right within like ten minutes of the of the first episode. I was just like, sure, yep. let's see where this goes. I was I was a little excited, I must admit, to kind of see them like outside of the house, uh, you know. But again, it's about roommates, as Hadi has pointed out, right? So like, it doesn't really work as well, uh, when it's not, yeah, right. Uh, you know, uh, again, like. The cast is phenomenally funny. Matt Berry, in particular, <laughs> this season is insanely funny uh, with what he's ever do. I do think it's more of a Guillermo and Nando season, uh, which I love because I think like in other seasons we don't get as much um, from Nando, especially uh, you know mm. uh, the whole like wife thing, the whole like Jin thing. It was oh my god, um, the whole plastic I, surgery I, thing. Yeah, the plastic surgery yeah. like, and having like 51 wishes and all of that. Like I, I love um, all these like kind of like little antics that um, they get up to, right? And even as they're going about doing all that, you have these amazing kind of like character growth opportunities or character arcs that 
happen while you are holding your sides laughing at the nonsense that they get up to. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I really, really enjoyed this season. I think there are a lot of like super standout moments that I don't want to spoil. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, out, outside of you know Colin Robinson coming back who Colin Robinson still like I don't know if he's my favourite character but he's certainly the most important character <laughs> uh, yeah. in terms of like what he brings to the table and just balancing out the rest of these vampires and their shenanigans mm-hmm. um, yeah um, Hardy yeah. Uh, any final thoughts and then give your ratings on season 4 uh, I think this is a solid 9 out of 10 for me for this season okay wow all right. Um, what about you, Isa? Any any closing thoughts and your final rating? Uh, I, I think if you've been following what we do in the shadows for three seasons already, season four is not going to disappoint you. It yep. offers more of the same and a lot more at that. Um, the I don't know how much longer they can possibly drag out the format. Uh, so it would be interesting to see them kind of like innovate. Um perhaps in upcoming seasons but you know who knows if it's not broken why fix it right um, mm. sure. I'm gonna give it a solid 7.5 for me um, in tune with like what I've been giving it for all previous other seasons so it's a 7.58 basically yeah yeah Um. Uh, yeah the, the show remains charming and funny because of its mix of dry and blue humor, yep. uh, we get this year this year in particular a murderous role <laughs> of incredible episodes back to back to back yeah. Um, you know, the, like like you were saying, the the house with the parody was mm-hmm. pretty much the season standout. We got a lot of great throwaway jokes. Yeah. What we do in the shadows has always excelled in leveraging its unique blend of absurdist comedy and emotional payoff. Mm-hmm. And season four is no different. Yep. Uh, the show is also you know gleefully violent as always. <laughs> they have grisly running gags yeah. revolving around the constant on camera murders that they are committing. Yeah. Uh, Plus, focusing on the cast in each of your own personal arcs also opens up plenty of room for one of TV's best sitcoms <laughs> to or sitcom casts yeah. to shine overall. So yeah, I'm, I'm splitting the difference between you guys. I'm giving this one an 8 out of 10. Nice. Uh, let's move on to um, not just one of the best shows that we are reviewing this episode, but one of the best shows in general, I think, mm. of 2022. Yeah. Harley Quinn Season 3. Mm. Uh, this animated series, first launched in 2019, was instantly special from the beginning. Um, it delivered this riotously funny, irreverent, silly, violent, and shockingly heartfelt take on Harley Quinn and the characters of the DC Universe. Mm-hmm. Um, now in Season 3, the show continues to mirror the delightfully chaotic energy of its title character, um, sort of gleefully and hilariously skewering every self-serious corner of the DC universe with wild abandon while also sneaking in some of the best character development available in any form of superhero TV. Uh, Season 3 refuses to lose any of its signature satirical bite even as its heart gets a little bit softer due to Harley and Ivy's finally canon romance. Um, Harley and Ivy are officially an item now Mm -hmm. in Season 3 as the show picks up minutes after Harley and Ivy ran away from the latter's wedding uh, to Kite Man at the end of Season 2. Yeah. Uh, now they're embarking on, uh, similar to Nando, <laughs> but in this time, yeah, they're it. calling it, yeah, um, <laughs> they're calling it the Eat, Bang, Kill tour. Yeah. Um, the, the power couple is soon reunited with uh, the crew of King Shark, Clayface, and Frank the Plant as Ivy sets her sights on terraforming Gotham 
into an Eden paradise, which is the season-long arc. Meanwhile, uh, Jim Gordon and Joker find themselves locked in a mayoral race. Mm -hmm. Uh, Batman and Catwoman pursue romantic relations. Mm -hmm. And James Gunn, uh, yes, the real-life James Gunn, voices James Gunn, um, prepares for a new film, a Thomas Wayne biopic, (laughs) uh, starring Clayface as Thomas Wayne. Um, the Joker subplot, I feel, is especially fun. Is. Um, now that he's a stepdad and realizes that American public schools and the healthcare system are shambles, he is running his mural campaign on socialist reforms, mm-hmm. uh, genuinely wanting to overhaul the education and healthcare systems in Gotham. Yep. Um, his followers, uh, the, the Sane Crown Posse, uh, are this kind of boyish <laughs> and obvious parody of the Bernie Sanders bro. Uh, it's kind of a riot. Uh, but the big crux of season three is obviously Harley and Ivy's new relationship. Um, saying you're in love is easy, but being in love while also trying to honor your own personal passions and responsibilities yeah. is tough. And that's essentially the theme of season three because Harley tries to support Ivy's exploration of her supervillain ambitions, even as Harley herself starts questioning her own identity. Yeah. Is she a villain? Is she a hero? Is she an anti-hero? Mm-hmm. Um, this has been a fundamental part of the series since the beginning as Vahali we met since season one was struggling to define herself outside of her relationship with the Joker Mm -hmm. and the sensitivity and nuance which the writers bring to her journey is a huge factor in the show's success. Which is to say that even if the show didn't include some of today's most hilarious and inspired meta commentary on pop culture, um, not to mention some gloriously dumb and silly gags, it would still be compelling on an emotional level. But the fact that we get the meta commentary, the silly gags, and the compelling emotional narratives is pure chef's kiss. Yeah. The show's writers have built an incredible niche for themselves by making fun of their parent company's real-life failures. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. For for instance, there's a running bit about adding a CGI mustache to a character in the, in the Thomas Wayne biopic, kind of sort of referencing the Henry Cavill controversy. Yep. Um, it also features a very cool Inception-style episode where Harley goes into Bruce Wayne's head, yeah. discovers his trauma, finds out that he's Batman, and decides to help Bruce work past his survivor's guilt. Yeah. Um, that the Inception parody also manages to be a Frasier parody, as well as maybe the funniest slash most emotional interpretation of the Thomas and Martha Wayne death yeah. scene ever depicted on screen uh, is itself a minor miracle. Uh, and the best part is Harley actually respects the doctor-patient confidentiality enough to keep Bruce's secret. Uh, the show is insane. It's blood-soaked, it's so fucking funny, mm-hmm. and it's sneakily so fucking deep. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the highlights that I have this month, probably the best thing on TV that I've seen this month. Uh, what do you think, Harley? What do you think about season three of uh, Harley Quinn? Uh, I think the success of the softball season. Yep. I mean, I think the softball season, again, just like... Uh, uh, what we do in the shadows this show goes from strength to strength yeah yeah. yeah. season 3 was I think the best season out yep. of the 3 uh, it yep. went deep into a lot of the like, Batman was just supposed to be a parody character in this series mm-hmm. he became quite instrumental in the entire season you know yeah and for the first time we actually see Batman actively dealing with his grief yeah. in a way that we've never seen superhero shows tackle before. Yeah. Because I guess they're afraid of maturity in characters. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, this Bruce Wayne matures a lot here. Exactly. You know, I mean, he they, that, that, that whole therapy session, he, I mean, before the Harley Quinn Inception thing, he had the therapy session with that musical DJ guy. 
Yep, yep. That was beautifully done. Like, you know, I mean, even though it was like sing-song and stuff like that, right? It was supposed mm-hmm. to be this silly thing, but they were really delving into the feelings of these characters and their, 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 what they, their insecurities and all that. Lah. Yeah, why is Batman Batman? Like, in a very plain, <laughs> albeit musical way, but <clears throat> it, it's still the most, the deepest we've ever gone into. Yeah. That part of his life. Uh, yeah. And again, this is among all this glittering, blood-soaked, um, crazy parody that's going on, you know? This chaos yeah, that's yeah, going yeah. on. Uh, obviously, yep. the center of the show, Ivy and uh, and Harley Quinn, again, um, is amazing. Their relationship, mm. how they how they grow throughout the all the episodes, right? Um, it's unashamed and it's not um, it's not willing to compromise. It's uncompromising, lah, In the sense mm. that you know you have uh, you have real conflict between the two, especially by the end of 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 the season itself. And I think the the context of the conflict may be unrelatable, but the idea, idea. of the conflict yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of two different people trying to Correct. parallel their lives, you know, inner is real relational conflict yes. that we can all see Correct. in all we've all experienced before. Which I feel is so beautifully done. I mean, you take away all the gore and all the the crazy chaos, right? You have a very solid story on a relationship between two people. You mm. know, the ups and downs, you know, about, about how they interact with their friends, how they how they solve certain relationship issues and all that. And what happens when your goals don't align. Yeah, and, and you know, you feel that heartache for them, you know, by the end of the season or so. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. And, yeah, so it's beautifully done, uh, you know, and it's beautifully disguised as well uh, behind yep. this mask of this chaos and this this parody and all, you know, the, 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 the psychosis of this show. Yeah, mm-hmm. so again, uh, grew from strength to strength. I really had fun. I... I no, the, it was all the episodes were fun. Uh, yep. the Joker episode, the stand for me was a standout. You know, the mayoral episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It didn't start out with mayoral. It was. It just started out with this stepdad trying to get his the, his children into a, a Spanish, Spanish class. class. You know. Yep. And it evolved into that, and it evolved so naturally. Um. Yeah. And characters like Clayface had a bit more airtime. Characters like King Shark had an interesting episode as well. You know, yeah, 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 he took over his dad's kingdom yeah. finally. You know, he's finally king. He's shark. finally king shark. Um, yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. So brilliantly done. Uh, I cannot wait for season four. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I like you. I also thought the Joker subplot episode, uh, was was fantastic, man. Um, it's specifically a really really good parody of the first Tim Burton Batman. Yeah. Uh, you know the way Joker do and all the things that he did uh, to advance his mural campaign was really really funny. <laughs> um, he it had some parodies of um, the Dark Knight as well. Mm-hmm. You know uh, we're not doing a Reservoir Dogs here every time. You know, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was all really really funny lah. Um, but season three's take on Harley and Ivy's new romance mm-hmm. is unsurprisingly the highlight of of course. Yeah. You know, tackling all the highs and lows in ways that are incredibly true to each character as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why I'm giving this uh, an 8.5 out of 10. What about you, Hadi? I'll give it a 9. Yes, yeah, yes. okay. Very, very good. Um, yeah, like like I said earlier on, this is probably going to be the most gushiest we've been for mo- all of our main topics here because uh, they're, they're all uniformly good. Uh, it's been a really, really great mm-hmm. TV month uh, this month. And this continues to our next main topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about Season 2 of Primal. Um, in the final scene of the spectacular first season of Gandhi Tatowski's violent, wordless, and gorgeous anim- uh, Adult Swim animated series, Primal, 
we were left with the show's first word of dialogue, Mira. What seems like a simple utterance belied a greater significance as it was delivered by the caveman Spear, mm-hmm. who up to then has yet to see anything. Yeah. Um, after his family died in a brutal attack, he had been without any human connection until he meets Mira. He had initially been suspicious of her, though began to gradually open up himself in a way that he hadn't before. Uh, this moment of connection was dashed when she was suddenly abducted and taken away on a ship, standing alongside his T-Rex companion Fang, uh, who lets out a pain roar. They both watch helplessly as the ship departs into the setting sun at the end of season one. That episode, at almost two years ago, and left the story on a somber note as we, the audience, were crushed right alongside Spear and Fang. Um, That was the cherry on top of a great season defined by loss. Mm -hmm. While there is still plenty to be said about loss in the second season of Primal, um, it couldn't be better to see these characters back as they try to go after Mira. Mm -hmm. It picks up right where it left us. The duo hatch a plan to begin a pursuit. While the first season was much more about, say, relatively self-contained storylines from episode to episode, this season, for the first time, has a larger driving force, an overarching narrative. Finding Mira, and then saving Mira, and then right at the end in the second half, fighting off the rise of human civilizations, whose armies and warriors seem to exude more cruelty and savagery than nature. Mm. That's because their savagery is in pursuit of profit, in pursuit of greed. It's not in pursuit of basic survival. Story arcs and the jump from prehistory to ancient history in Season 2 aren't the only things that have changed in Primal. This season also takes other big swings, delving into anthology territory, covering perspectives other than Spear and Fang. Large swaths of it are dedicated to two Viking warriors returning home uh, to a village massacred by our heroes, and we follow their grief and mourning and their quest for revenge in their plot to kill Spear and Fang. There's even a whole dialogue-driven episode set in Victorian (laughs) England where we follow a group of upper-class academics discussing the uh, the nature of primal the show and the nature of, you know, our primordial essence. Yeah. When one of them proposes that our savage natures will emerge under drastic circumstances. In matters of survival, our primal instincts will override any veneer of civilization. And that theory is put to the test when the episode becomes a horror movie as the academics are terrorized by a lunatic madman who breaks into their house. What is unchanged, however, is that primal remains as well-animated as it ever was, bringing to life this alternate universe of macabre, sometimes magical monsters that is meticulously molded into a natural world of uh, history mm. and brutality and breathtaking beauty. Um, even though Tartowski has had a long history of creating you know, some of the most beloved shows of old, like Dexter's Laboratory or Samurai Jack, it is, in my opinion, this series that really sees him stretching his creative muscles. Mm. Most of the story is still told with almost no dialogue, save for the many pain grunts and ground-shaking roars and hushed conversations in unknown languages. Instead, everything is largely still communicated visually in a manner that is continually dynamic and creative in instilling each scene, each emotion, each expression 
with with uh, with a ton of meaning. Uh, the way this manner of storytelling takes hold of you cannot be understated. This is the epitome of visual storytelling in a TV medium, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, what about you, Isa? What do you think about season two of Primal? Oh, man. Um, I think you're absolutely right that they chose to take really big swings this time around, right? Yeah. And for the most part, I think while I was watching... Uh, I, I was a little unsure, right? Because I they did so well for season one. This whole um, no dialogue thing, right? And just relying purely on the visuals and, and the soundtrack to kind of tell the story has it done them so well, you know? Uh, but I feel like uh, there was only so much more they could have possibly done with that. And I love the fact that they decided to come out swinging like this. Um, the mm-hmm. whole kind of like, uh, traversing into ancient history itself uh, got me more excited than I thought I would be, right? Um, mm. It was interesting for me to try and like identify all these like different cultures that Spear and Fang uh, end up either coming into contact with or um, fighting in against or uh, in, in yeah. conflict with. You know, uh, I was trying to figure out at the beginning before I went went to read up on it, like, you know, which, uh, which group of people, you know, belong to which kind of culture. Um, and it's very, very interesting to kind of see all of that. And I think it also um, allows us to see our heroes in a much larger context um, than we previously had, right? Uh, season one was largely centered around the two of them within a very small kind of given space. Um, yep. Bringing them into the, the world at large, right, um, redefines their relationship, this wordless relationship that they have with each other by giving us the context of the characters around them. Uh, and mm-hmm. that uh, really enhances, I guess, uh, or allows you to re uh, to see them in a new paradigm. And I really enjoyed that, uh, for sure. Um, the Primal Theory episode, the one, yep. <laughs> the one that set um, much, much later on, that yep. was a little jarring for me, right? But it made sense in the grand scheme of the season. And I thought it was an interesting kind of break um, just from the story itself to to give us, I don't know, a breather maybe. Um, it's, a, it's a very Atlanta move that they did. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, yeah. I mean, all the more power to them for it because I continue to enjoy it as well. Um, yep. it's, uh, it's interesting to me that despite the fact that we get a lot more dialogue, right? Um, because Spear and Fang don't use their words, or don't, mm. well, uh, well, Fang can't use words at all, but still. Um, mm. Like, so much continues to be told from, like, these amazing kind of facial expressions. A look, a smile, you know, a, a pained uh, face. Like, all these small, small things that we used to only get with Spear um, and, to a lesser extent, Fang, uh, now mm. have... It, it's It's fascinating to see how you can show... Um, non-verbal communication in an animated medium, right? And it's so well done, right? Like, it's a look that you immediately kind of recognize um, from an audience point of view. And I think that's, like, so, so brilliant. Uh, yeah, sure. yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of uh, detours into genres that we haven't seen in Primal before, yeah. you know, like 
for example, the, the construction of the raft in the beginning mm. to follow Mira's kidnappers across the ocean lends the series its first moments of comedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then things get instantly darker and more dangerous when they set sail. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, the human and dino duo do get separated uh, in the first quarter of the season during their voyage, mm -hmm. and they go on separate paths for an episode, yeah. which is the first for the show as well. Um, this is where I think Primal remains at its most interesting. Like There is... Plenty of bloody violence and wanton destruction mm -hmm. that the duo take part in uh, that will satisfy people who come just for that. Yeah. However, when the dust settles, you realize that these are just two very broken, sentient creatures struggling to survive. Yes. Um, each of their near-death experiences, as exciting as it is to watch, takes a heavy toll on them. Mm -hmm. And it's a toll that we don't really watch in season one. Yes. Um, when the show slows down, from wrestling with a wide array of new enemies to then begin wrestling with the emotional impact that it has on the characters, yeah. it really finds something different and special uh, in Primal Season 2. Yeah. The lives of both Fang and Spear are defined by all-consuming terror because every new place that they arrive at could bring about a painful death. It has happened to those they love and they carry that with them. Mm -hmm. um, and it happens to every other living thing as the shows demonstrate. Uh, but what happens when Fear and uh, fear. Uh, I'm sorry. Spear and Fang yep. find more things to worry about than just the two of them. Yeah. What happens when um, when Spear finds a lover? What happens when Fang gets children? And and these are continuations of their character arcs, if you can see, if you can put it that way, like that we explore in season two as well. Yeah. Um, I think because of that, overall season two is even more emotionally complex. Oh yeah. Uh, the action uh, by itself is also on a scale beyond what they've done in season one, <laughs> uh, and it keeps getting amped up as it goes deeper and deeper into the season. Yeah. There's shock in it. There's a big surprise that will shake the audience uh, mm -hmm. towards the finale. Mm -hmm. Um, it's still also super um heavy metal, I guess, for like for <laughs> better term. Um, it's very pulpy, but at at the core, uh, of the character story, uh, between Fang and Spear. Um, that is the heart la, of the show. Uh, and, and I think Primal continues to impress the hell out of me. Yeah. Um, including the fact that it doesn't seem that they will slow down in taking big swings going into season 3. Mm. Seeing as uh, the developments of the finale uh, will <laughs> irreversibly alter what the show is about. Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, what about you, Isa? Like closing thoughts and your, and your rating. Oh man, uh, it is... It is it's, it's very hard sometimes, right, um, to recommend Primal to people who haven't watched it. It's one of those shows, right? You can say like, oh, you know, uh, if you're a fan of like Samurai Jack, like go ahead, the art style, and Amy Statovsky, right? Um, and he he's well known for his work, all, many of which are childhood favorites of ours. Uh, but Primal yep, yep. being the kind of, uh, like if I go up to a, to a friend of mine and say, hey, you really need to watch Primal, right? It's basically about like a caveman and a T-Rex and their adventures and like there's no dialogue. It's a super hard mm -hmm. sell, right? But yep. uh, it's it's so hard to recommend but at the same time, like it's one of the best pieces of animation that we've gotten in recent history, right? Just mm -hmm. the sheer amount of attention to detail and care uh, in in displaying visual communication through the animation is like next level stuff. And I, I really hope if you guys haven't already caught Primal season one or season two, uh, please give it a shot. I mean, the gore and violence may not be everybody's thing, but there is something that is so 
subtly and nuanced and brilliant about this series. Uh, and I think you're right. This is definitely Tatowski's um, best work, for sure. Uh, I'm going to give Primal Season 2 a 9 out of 10. Yes, uh, I'm giving this a 9 out of 10 as well. Uh, do note the wording when I said Harley Quinn was my favorite show this month, mm-hmm. but Primal is objectively the best show this month. Mm, yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is a little bit of cheating. Like, they're like <laughs> tight for number one for me. Uh, but whatever, it's a 9 out of 10 for me as well. Uh, I'm going to move on to a very, very quick, quick hits where I will cover some movies and TV shows that my co-hosts have not been able to watch uh, just because you know their job doesn't involve them watching TV and movies all the time. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is not on TV, Finally, let's delve into the realm of film. <laughs> uh, this one, I'm going to be talking about Marcel the Shell with the shoes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marcel the Shell with shoes on is such an adorable, delicate little gem of a film from A24. Uh, the movie follows a one-inch tall shell uh, voiced by Jenny Slate, uh, who ekes out a colorful existence with his grandmother, Connie, also a shell. Uh, they were once a part of a sprawling community of shells, Uh, anthropomorphic shells, but they now live alone as the sole survivors after a mysterious tragedy wipes out the rest of their family. Mm. Um, Then, when a documentary filmmaker discovers the shells, uh, Marcel and Connie, amongst the clutter of his Airbnb, he starts posting short films that uh, that he makes of Marcel online. Mm -hmm. um, And these short films of Marcel brings millions of passionate fans as well as unprecedented dangers when their fame rises. Uh, So this filmmaker named Dean uh, helps Marcel go on a mission to try and find his long-lost family. Uh, That's essentially the plot of the film. Interestingly, uh, Marcel the Show actually began in 2010 as a series of cute little short films posted on YouTube, uh, roughly around three minutes long. Um, And this movie makes those earlier short films a part of the story, with the real-life writer, director, creator of Marcel, Dean Fleischer-Kemp, playing the role of Dean, the documentary filmmaker, who discovers Marcel in his Airbnb. Um, So with his newfound internet popularity, Marcel's sad story gets out to fans who can become both a hindrance and a help. Uh, But the meta nature of the story also allows for Marcel to explore celebrity, the surprise success of the internet's love for this tiny little show. Mm -hmm. And it makes these past short films on YouTube a part of the larger Marcel narrative. Um, But even though Marcel the show with the shoes on does give its title show more of a purpose and narrative than we've seen in the past, the writers know that audiences won't mind just spending plenty of time with Marcel espousing on what his life is like. Uh, Marcel the show is a relatively quiet film and yet Marcel's observations and frequently hilarious and inherently sweet uh, uh, sayings, you know, or, mm-hmm. or everything that he says coming from this show, yeah. it, it's, it's like Marcel, like for example, Marcel revealing that he sleeps at night on two slices of bread that he calls his bread room, you know, things like that. It's just very LOL and very non-sequitur and hilarious. And considering that Marcel has mostly existed in three-minute bursts on the internet for over a decade, it's impressive how well this extended version of this character works without overstaying its welcome and without this idea ever growing old. Um, Transforming a three-minute shot into a 90-minute film is very difficult, but this does it very, very well. Uh, Marcel's constant exploration of the world around him 
and the joy with which she views the world is contagious and it's near impossible to step away from the theatre or your laptop or however you watch this movie without a smile on your face, having spent the time with one of the most endearing little film characters you've seen in recent years. Um, yet Marcel Deschamps and his extremely cute appearance effectively allows this film to hit on some surprisingly difficult topics. Um, beyond making Marcel's internet popularity a part of the actual narrative here, uh, Marcel also explores heartbreak at the end of a relationship through the director, Dean Fleischer Kemp. Mm. Um, the writer-director, uh, Dean, and Jenny Slate, who voices Marshall, were actually married for several years. Um, and in the film, Kemp has moved into this Airbnb after a recent long-term relationship ended, with Marcel trying to help him move on. Um, it's kind of astounding that Slate and Dean Fleischer Kemp make this a part of their story, uh, but this heartbreak works well as a parallel to Marcel's story about losing his family and how they move, they both must move past their trauma. Uh, I think Marcel the show, like amongst its winsome exterior, is largely about loss mm -hmm. and how loss is not only the end of something but opens up the possibility of an exciting new beginning. Marcel is largely concerned about his last remaining family member, Connie, who is a bit slower and moving around. Uh, slower in her old age, you know, starting to have dementia and stuff like that. Um, and as Marcel beautifully puts it when talking about Connie, she's lost a small piece of a larger puzzle. Uh, the relationship between Marcel and the grandmother Connie is wonderful and touching and kind of bolstered by the excellent voice performances by both Slate and Isabella Rossellini, who, vo who voices Connie. Uh, the bond between these two and the way that they attempt to protect each other, even if it holds back or hurts themselves, and the self-sacrifice that can come out of love is another masterful handling of a difficult topic that is managed with great care and compassion. Uh, Marcel Deschamps, like its title character, is far more than meets the eye. Uh, on the outside, it looks adorable and delightful, which it is. But on the inside, there's a tremendous amount of emotional complexity going on as the difficulties and tragedies of life are seen through the eyes of a one-inch tall show. Uh, Marcel the Show with Shoes On, one of the most precious, inventive, and downright lovely films of the year, uh, giving this one a 9.5 out of 10. Uh, next up, let's talk about Pinocchio. Mm. Uh, this live-action adaptation of Pinocchio by Robert Zemeckis oh. is a competent, if slightly wooden, remake mm. uh, of the Disney animated classic. Uh, nothing about this movie is offensively bad, mm -hmm. uh, but not even big-name stars like Tom Hanks, or Joseph Gordon-Levitt, or Cynthia Erivo can elevate this mediocre, pain-by-numbers script. Uh, the visuals are lush, but the film is just so laboured and lifeless. Mm. Uh, here's hoping that Guillermo del Toro's version coming in December will fare much better, because this is a 4.5 out of 10. Uh, just a curious question. Sure. So for this Pinocchio, was it theoretically released, or is it Disney Plus? This is on Disney+. Plus. Right. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio will be theatrically released in Disney. But it won't be under Disney, right? It isn't under uh, Disney. It's under Disney or something. Oh, no, 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 it's not. It's not, it's not it's Disney. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 because it's um open IP. You yeah, know, yeah. Like yeah. Those old yeah. stories that you can remake I mean, many times if you want. Mm -hmm. Correct, yeah. So uh, del Toro's one looks really great, but this Zemeckis one is pretty pain by numbers. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, finally, on quick hits, I'm going to be talking about Hocus Pocus 2. Um, nearly 30 years ago, um, three long-dead witches attempted to achieve eternal life and beauty by 
by way of sucking the souls of Salem's children uh, in the 1993 Halloween classic, Hocus Pocus. Um, it, was, it was starring Bette Midler, uh, Kathy Najimy, and Sarah Jessica Parker as, witchly, as the witch siblings, Winifred, Mary, and Sarah Sanderson. Um, so Hocus Pocus kind of became this spooky season must-watch for everyone who grew up with it and fell in love with the sisters and their fish-out-of-the-water antics and the adventures of the three children who have until sunrise to stop them. Um, and now, three decades later, the Sanderson sisters are back for Hocus Pocus 2, uh, just in time to put a spell over a whole new generation this Halloween. Um, in addition to bringing back the three sisters, the film also sees the return of Doug Jones uh, as Billy Butcherson, uh, Winifred's former lover who rose from the dead in the original movie to help the kids bring his ex-girlfriend's schemes to an end. So the story of Hocus Pocus 2 follows two teenagers who light the mysterious black flame candle and in inadvertently brings back the Sanderson sisters. The movie explores the three witches' backstory as well, which we didn't get in the first film. I'm happy to report that Hocus Pocus 2 successfully summons the magic of nostalgia with a fresh new magical tale filled with the same spectacular fun as the original. Mm. The sequel delivers unexpected meaning and a truly delightful new cast. Mm. Um, It's exactly what you want from a legacy sequel, keeping the silly charm of the fan-favorite original while evolving it to fit a new audience nearly 30 years later, which is why I'm giving this a 7.5 out of 10. Nice. Uh, so yeah, uh, I mean, Hocus Pocus 2 is good, but if you have to watch something from this month's quick hits, <laughs> make it Marcel the Shell with shoes on, yep. which of course is a 9.5 out of 10. It, it took all I could to stop myself from giving it a 10. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it, it comes pretty darn close. <laughs> uh, next up though, let's talk about a new anime on, on Netflix. Hardy will be handling this one. Yeah. It is called... Cyberpunk Edge Runners, which is a spin-off of the beleaguered Cyberpunk 2077 video game. Beleaguered is right, yes. Beleaguered, what do you think? think of... It's improved leaps and bounds since then, lah. Sure. Uh, well, yeah. What do you think about Cyberpunk Edge Runners, Hadi? Uh, I think, first of all, it is a well-needed shot to the arm for a game that was, you know, a lot of people highlight to what is wrong with the gaming industry, lah. You know, a project that was that overpromised, overhyped, and then failed to deliver on when it when it was uh, opened, Yeah. Um. Yep. For years now, I mean, since its release, uh, obviously the developers have been developing the game and making the game better, mm-hmm. but it could never get back to. A lot of people were just turned off by you know. It's like season eight of Game of Thrones, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so when when this came out. It had the advantage of, first of all, it's been a while since Cyberpunk came out. The game itself. Mm. And when you watch this with fresh eyes, it suddenly reignited your love for... I mean, the the hype again, like, you know, why actually we all bought into the hype of uh, the game itself. And it, large, it largely delivers on the mythology, it, 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 you know, on the on the action, on the possibilities that were promised to you, but in this show, mm. uh, yep. it follows a, 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 a tight crew of, uh, of age runners, basically mercenaries, la, you know, who mm-hmm. do like contracts and stuff like that. Uh, you, 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 there's a lot of like jargon from the game that's carried over. So if you play the game, you, you'd be like, oh, okay, I know what that means. You know, I know what BD means. I know what solo means, you know, that kind of thing. 
Um, and I feel that uh, it definitely can be standalone as well. Like you don't have to play the game to enjoy this show. Mm. And that, I feel, is something that is very important. Lah. Because, yeah. you know, as much as I love tie-ins and all that, uh, I feel that your tie-in is a failure if you require the person to play the game to enjoy this show. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm. Property should be independent as well. Lah. And mm. independently, Edge Runners works as this high-paced, uh, high-action, um, a lot of gratuitous uh, sex and gore and blood. Um, and it successfully uh, uh, it successfully interprets Night City into this very vibrant, uh, very lively, uh, very um, interesting place lah, that, that the show didn't Managed uh, the, the game didn't manage to capture it when it first released. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it it, it it showed us the promise that was given to uh, that was uh given to us a long time ago, and because mm-hmm. of that, I mean, uh, you know, a million players came back to to Cyberpunk to go and play it again. Yeah. You know, to 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 uh, download all the the mods that that you know eight runners, um, the modders you know went crazy and started doing all these eight runner mods and all that. People are downloading mm. it, playing it again, and then finding joy in this thing that we gave up on. La. So it's like House of the Dragons, la, you know? Yeah, where, sure. They kind of bring back this weird missing uh, promise. La. Yeah. Mm. How would you rate it, Adi? Uh, I'll give it like a seven and a. I'll give it a flat seven. La. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's decent. Uh, definitely, some it can be tropey at times, you know? Uh, but it's a fun ride. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I said, do you watch this as well? I dropped it after three episodes. Uh, All right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I agree. I agree. It's a lot all the of review points. that you need. Though. Yeah. Well, with Hadi, I agree with a lot of points that Hadi has kind of brought up as to like, there are mm. some redeeming qualities about it. In particular, Trigger has done a phenomenal job with the look and feel mm. of um, the entire anime, right? The, mm-hmm. the way the action flows, the way the city looks, all of that. Beautiful. Uh, for me, uh, my main like kind of nitpicking is that Eternus doesn't bring anything new to the table in terms of the genre, right? Cyberpunk no. has been something that's been around for a very long time. Yeah, and I mean, Ghost in the Shell all... and all that, Akira are so much better. Yeah, right? Like, even yeah. the ongoing Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, the latest one that came out, right? Isn't sure. Good. Because it feels like you, they are running out of ideas and they are bring brought nothing feels dated to the table. Mm. So outside yeah. of the the very very well done visual aspect and character mm-hmm. designs and background designs and just the setting itself, um, yeah, Edge Runners just didn't quite give me enough when there are other things for me to watch. Uh, okay. yeah. yeah, but if yeah. you're into cyberpunk, by all means, man, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I I dropped it after three episodes as well. Um. I don't think it's as bad as some other TV shows out there. Uh, cough, cough, rings of power. But <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but it's a, it's a five out of ten for me. Sure. Though. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to the movies because uh, me and Isa recently went to the cinemas. Yeah. Uh, to watch Shin Ultraman. Oh, yeah. It is by director Shinji Higuchi yes. and writer producer Hideaki Aino. Uh, this is their follow up to their record breaking Shin Godzilla, and it not only lives up to the hype but it perfectly encapsulates what's so great <laughs> and less great about the Ultraman, fran- about the Ultraman franchise. Yeah. Um, the movie centers on the SSSP, 
a small group of scientists and investigators who are in charge of dealing dealing with the myriad of kaiju threats against Japan. Um, a funny moment early on reveals that it's only Japan that has to deal with kaijus. Yeah. So the rest of the UN has largely kind of just left them to it. Um, the SSSP leader, Tamura, uh, played by Hideyoti, uh, sorry, uh, Hideyotoshi Nashijima from Drive My Car, mm-hmm. uh, does his best to deal with the many ministers who have a say in the kaiju dealings while his team finds a solution to the increasingly number, the, the increasing number of kaiju threats. Um, early on in the film, seemingly out of nowhere, a silver giant appears and fights a kaiju, destroying it. So the SSSP designates this new being as Ultraman. Uh, so that's essentially the plot and premise of Ultraman. <laughs> yeah. Ultraman teaming up with the SSSP to deal with a myriad of kaiju slash alien threats. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the movie, Isaac? Oh man, uh, I, I really enjoyed it for a myriad of reasons, right? Like, first of all, it's such an amazing nostalgic throwback to, you know, watching the original Ultraman shows. Uh, they yeah. managed to capture the look and feel of uh, of all of that. I thought the monster designs were amazing uh, for an Ultraman film, uh, you know, because it's exactly what it needed to look like within that world. Uh, yeah, and overall, I thought it was just kind of like a fun ride to revisit all of that. I think just the immense in- attention to detail to make sure they got the tone of it right, uh, like real props uh, to the entire to the entire uh, creative team uh, for making sure... They're still that acting as well that the actors tried yeah, to replicate. Yeah, it is insane, yeah. right? Especially when you get yeah. like top-class actors like Hideyoshi uh, Nishijima to come on board and play this like stoic stone-faced you know uh, yeah. uh kind of uh, character is hilarious like reading of the reading of the teleprompter kind of acting yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how how difficult it must be to be an actor of that caliber and have to do do something like that right and for yep. you to realize that it's intentional right to have these a lot of like a listers uh, as far as japanese cinema goes uh come in to do that for for Shin Ultraman is is so funny and so good at the same time. Um, yeah. Overall, yeah, it's a fun ride. Like I don't really have any kind of like major complaints because it leans into the silliness of it. It leans into, you know, what uh, all all the good kind of like pulpy stuff that we used to get back in. I'm guessing like late eighties, right, early nineties, um, with the Ultraman franchise. You know. Um, uh, it did feel pacing wise it was a little strange I think was it you hit or was it Chris that mentioned like I think it was you you mentioned like I you felt like you watched the entire season of Ultraman in one sitting mm-hmm. yeah so uh, some parts were a little strange in terms of the pacing but at the same time like it wasn't something that was too like noticeable like they bring you from one kind of like plot line to the next plot line smoothly enough so that it's there's no whiplash from it necessarily um mm. Yeah, outside of that, maybe I think my only kind of complaint, if I were to nitpick uh, as as it goes along, is that um, Shin Godzilla had such a strong message, right? Mm. Uh, about the horrors of red tape and bureaucracy, uh, which is the true mm. danger when it comes to like calamitous situations like the invasion of Godzilla, for example. Uh, mm. Whereas Shin Ultraman, and I remember very clearly as a kid watching Ultraman, there was a very somewhat heavy-handed, um, you know, message about like you know, um, taking care of the planet, 
uh, you know, a whole like green eco thing going on because his chest um, like would beep whenever he stays too long because of pollution, etc., etc. Uh, that felt noticeably missing, I think, in Shin Ultraman. And maybe it's because I'm comparing it directly to how strong the messaging was in, in Shin Godzilla. And I'm curious if that is something they considered but decided that it wasn't necessary. You know, um, that's the only mm-hmm. real thing I can pick on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like you said, Shin Ultraman very much honors the properties' roots. Mm. Uh, with Higuchi kind of giving the special effects a cheesy, <laughs> retro, cool feel that's knowingly antiquated, um, intentionally antiquated. Uh, this strategy lends the film a playfulness that's a mixture of campy and wholesome. Uh, without devolving into the kind of modern, cynical, snarky mocking that we expect from Western uh, superhero properties, for example. Yeah. Um, the juxtaposition of the contemporary time period, not to mention the committed performances oh, yeah. and the out-of-date effects, gives Shin Ultraman a charming timelessness. Uh, the movie also, uh, like you said, feels very episodic, mm. uh, intentionally mirroring the 1960s TV show, um, at nearly two hours, the action splits between various alien threats, uh, each more perilous than the last. Yeah. They all build on each other, and we do learn that they all have a connection. But again, the movie isn't about really the villains or the fights. Mm. It's about uh, how the SSSP members deal with these threats. Uh, this is a movie that fully understands the appeal of the Ultraman show, right down to making it ep- to making this movie episodic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it understands the appeal of the old-school kaiju genre, and it fully leans into the, the cheesiness of it. Uh. So, um, yeah, I'm giving this one a 7 out of 10. What about you? Isaac? Yeah, it's a 7 out of 10 for me as well. Definitely. Uh, okay, now we'll be moving on to Isa's Anime Corner. Oh, yeah. uh, what you have for us this month, Isa? All right, so it's an interesting trend, generally speaking, because we've gotten a lot of great anime in the seasons that you don't expect them with, right? Uh, spring and winter have been stacked over the last couple of years, right? With all the kind of great stuff. We've talked about uh, Art Taxi and To Your Eternity, uh, you know, Wonder Egg um, Priority to no end already. Um, summer 2002? Uh, summer 2022, oh God. Um, mm. uh, has been largely dominated by um, sequels. Right, or returning anime, largely. So I'm going to go over very quickly some of the ones that we've mentioned before and have come back and are kind of like decent and worth noting. Classroom of the Elite Season 2 is back after a good five-year break. Uh, if you're into that kind of like high school political intrigue, I guess, if, if that's the way that you want to do it with a very kind of questionable philosophical bent, then that's for you. Shadow House that I shouted out a couple of seasons ago also has season 2 coming out. The Devil is a Part-Timer coming back after literally a decade of not being about. Super popular uh, back in the day is back as well. As is Jojo Bizarre's Adventure, Stone Ocean, which is part 6. Uh, the second yep. half of it is now available for viewing where you follow uh, Kujo Jolene, uh, which has been a breath of fresh air to follow a female protagonist in Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Uh, mm. Dan Machi, uh, otherwise known is uh, as is otherwise known. Uh, full name: Is it wrong to pick up girls in a dungeon? Comes back for mm. season four, uh, which to me is uh, actually the best season that they've had so far. Uh, not everyone's cup of tea, I know, uh, but still uh, exceptional season. Overlord is back as well uh, with season four. 
um, more of the same stuff, expanding on the will building, more evil scheming to be done uh, from our overpowered protagonist. But the anime that I want to talk about is Made in Abyss. It has been 10 years. Made in Abyss Season 1 came out in 2012, and they are finally back with Season 2. This new season, uh, titled Made in Abyss, The Golden City of the Scorching Sun, continues the story of of Riku and Reg uh, as they continue their journey down into the abyss itself. Now, the first season came out before we started uh, recording. Uh, I think about two years before we uh, started genre equality and all of that. So I've never actually Mm. had a chance to uh, recommend Made in Abyss. So I'm going to take the Mm. opportunity now to say so. Made in Abyss Season 2 is hands down the best anime this season. Uh, and I'm not usually in the habit of picking um, sequels uh, or ongoing series uh, as the best anime, but Made in Abyss Season 2 takes everything that was great about Season 1 and ups it several notches, right? Uh, mm-hmm. For those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Made in Abyss is about uh, Riku, a girl who grows up in the town of Off that is a town that is situated right next to a giant abyss. Uh, And one of the main sources of income is you have these cave raiders who go into the abyss to mine for resources and to do their hunting. The entire town is kind of like dependent upon that for its economy. Uh, Riku's uh, mother is one of the most well-known cave raiders who disappeared a long time ago. And Riku has basically grown up uh, in an orphanage. Uh, as she comes of age, well, not really comes of age, but as she gets older, uh, Riku starts venturing out into the upper levels of the abyss itself, whereby she discovers this strange um, humanoid automaton called Reg, right? And uh, what follows is uh, Riku's and Reg's adventure deeper into the abyss itself in search of the mystery surrounding her mother's disappearance. Uh, the cutesy animation... Uh, belies a strange and expansive and uh, beautiful uh, world building that is at once bizarre and disturbing. Uh, that is the best I can do without giving too much away. Every mm. level of the abyss that they go to is an entirely different world. And um, uh, Cinema Citrus, so there's the studio that produced Made in Abyss, uh, takes its time with the design for every level that you go down for. Season 1 covers basically like five levels and in Season 2, we go on to level 6 and even deeper uh, from there. There are portions of this that are emotionally poignant uh, and will haunt you um, after watching it. Uh, it this mm-hmm. Made in Abyss um, is, is at the level of is at the level of some of the most emotional uh, anime that we've recommended before, right? Whether you want to talk about Your Lie in April, whether you want to talk about, like, maybe not... hmm, Yeah, around the level of Your Lie in April or, like, March Comes In Like a Lion, like, every emotional tangent is followed through and rewarding in all the ways that you want it to be. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to spoil anything for this current season because uh, as a f- kind of fresh recommendation on genre equality, please, 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 please watch Made in Abyss uh, because this anime corner is coming in very late in the season as well. I'm going to give Made in Abyss season 2 in 8.5 out of 10. 
uh, and wow, easily okay. the best thing that's happening uh, this um, summer season. Okay. We're going to move on to uh, the new stuff that we're getting uh, this season. First up, I'm going to talk about... Uh, oh, no. Uh, first off, we're going to talk about the Yakuza's Guide to Babysitting. Now, okay. uh, we've recommended Way of Husband, House Husband, right? Uh, and uh, we've also recommended Spy X Family. And I'm going to say that the Yakuza's Guide to Babysitting is an interesting kind of marry between the two. Uh, mm. Essentially, you get a full animation, not the nonsense PowerPoint stuff that we got with uh, Way of the House Husband. Um, uh, um, story about uh, Toru... Uh, Kirishima, who is commonly known as the demon of Sakuragi, which is one of the Yakuza gangs, right? Uh, a man who is not afraid to deal violence when it is necessary. Um, this has led him, unfortunately, to get into trouble with his boss after jeopardizing a peace treaty, uh, who punishes him by assigning him the task of taking care of his seven-year-old daughter, uh, Yega Sakuragi, right? Mm. Uh, what goes on from there is an amazing uh, kind of family story as these two vastly different characters come to terms with relating to each other and helping each other along their own emotional journeys. Uh, at the, on the one hand, it has all of the cuteness of you know, your Spy X family uh, with all of the shenanigans that you would get from Way of the House Husband as far as like your Yakuza kind of tropes go. Uh, mm -hmm. But what makes it interesting is that all these wonderful kind of like uh, bright moments of uh, of drama and emotion between our two kind of like co-protagonists uh, is the fact that the Yakuza's Guide to Babysitting doesn't shy away from showing you a lot of violence uh, when, as and when the story kind of calls for it. And that provides an interesting counterpoint. So this is my kind of pick for a fascinating slice of life, I guess. Um, okay. um, pick for this particular season. Uh, I'm mm. going to move on to Licorice Recoil. So have you ever wanted to watch an anime that basically takes John Wick, but it's a uh, high school anime girl. Uh, Interesting. Yes, uh, Licorice Recall is basically that, but you get two high school girls who are essentially John Wick. Um, so mm. in uh, well, in modern day Tokyo, uh, the number of terrorist uh, acts that have taken place have has been at, is at an all time low because of a particular syndicate called Direct Attack, also known as DA. Now, this organization raises uh, orphan girls as uh, trained killers uh, to carry out assassinations under their licorice program. Uh, we follow uh, Takina Inoue, who is an exceptional agent. Uh, who in the day is a, as far as you can tell, a bit of a loner high school girl, uh, but has a sense of purpose and a pension for perfection when it comes to her job as an agent. Uh, unfortunately, uh, she manages to bungle a certain situation resulting in some insubordination, which she gets punished for, and is partnered uh, with a new girl, uh, known as Chisato Nishikagi, who is equally as proficient, 
but has a bleeding heart uh, and basically believes that there is more to their job than simply, you know, taking out terrorists or taking their lives. Uh, the ensuing buddy cop, I guess, uh, act is mm-hmm. hilariously funny and touches on some very interesting emotional notes as you go about. Uh, but Licorice Recoil really stands out just in terms of its action and like the sheer amount of uh, fights that they kind of get into. Um, anything that you've seen in a John Wick movie, they've got it. Seriously, these girls are badass and they're not to be messed up with. Uh, the animation is top-notch. Um, the um, music that accompanies every action scene is also top-notch as well. Uh, I really, really enjoyed this. It's very hard to look away uh, when watching Licorice Recall. Moving okay. on, I'm going to talk about Call of the Night, uh, which is a story about Kao Yamori, uh, who is, uh, for all intents and purposes, an average middle school student who, you know, um, has difficulty understand human understanding human relationships and the concept of love. Uh, he wants to be special and stand out from the norm, and as a result of that, eventually uh, drops out of school. Uh, uh, because he drops out of school and basically there's no purpose in his life, he's plagued by constant kind of insomnia and uh, is prone to wandering the streets of Tokyo at night uh, by himself just to, you know, find something interesting to do. Uh, one night, mm. he encars- encounters a bizarre girl named Nazuna Nanakusa uh, who believes that people stay awake during the night because they are dissatisfied with how they spent their day uh, you know, much in the same reason we doom scroll, right? Um, okay. Uh, and they cannot rest until they release their uh, inner inhibitions after being offered to uh, um, to help Cole with his sleep issues and inviting him over to a place. It turns out that uh, uh, Nanakusa is a uh, vampire, right? Um, okay. So she bites him. Um, and he thinks that he's going to turn into the vampire, but it turns out that the rules for turning into a vampire are not that simple because you have to be in love with the person that bit you. So Cole sets out trying to fall in love with this vampire girl, right? Uh, Call of the Night is a vibe, right? The animation style, the, the empty Tokyo city streets, the twilight colors that constantly fill the screen, uh, is so gorgeous and so beautiful and really kind of like highlights, you know, um, what an urban kind of center feels like in the dead of night. Um, the two characters are very cute uh, in terms of their interaction with each other in this very strange, um, newfound middle school love kind of way, like young love kind of way, uh, but it being contextualized within like this whole like vampire um, setting is extremely fun uh, it, the the action is great uh, the jokes are great as well uh, this is a very vibey anime uh, it's the best I could put it and probably the vibiest of the bunch this season and it's beautiful to watch and extremely fun as we go along mm-hmm. uh, next up I'm going to talk about my compulsory as with any season isekai pick which uh, this is one of maybe eight that came out this season and wow. probably the only one that's kind of worth recommending. And it's called Parallel World Pharmacy, whereby a 31-year-old, uh, a 31-year-old uh, pharmacist, right? Or basically like pharmacological researcher 
dies of overwork trying to find um, the cure for the illness that took his young sister's life, younger sister's life, and finds himself reincarnated into a medieval setting where he is born um, to a noble family who are basically like royal pharmacists, if you can keep track mm. of that. Uh, okay. He also, turns out, now has the ability to wield magic, or in this particular case called the divine arts. Uh, this magic, as he discovers, allows the once 31-year-old and now like 10 or 12-year-old uh, to recreate any chemical compound that he can envision. So basically, you have like a PhD level of like chemistry guy coming into a medieval world with the power to create medicine from nothing. Uh, his entire goal is then to re, to revolutionize the entire medical care system within this world itself by setting up a pharmacy. Uh, it is very cute. It is extremely educational, uh, and it is probably the best isekai this season itself. Uh, I, if you're interested to see how that would possibly match up with such a strange kind of. Uh, uncommon isekai protagonist, I'm, I'm, please check out Parallel World Pharmacy. Uh, the last one mm. I want to talk about from this season uh, that I think is worth of note is Uncle from Another World, currently streaming on Netflix itself. Uh, and I guess this is a reverse, reverse isekai or post-isekai, okay. I guess. Um, Takafumi's uncle... Uh, who is only known as Oji-san within, uh, within the anime itself, has a near-fatal encounter with Chuck-kun uh, and is comatose for 17 years. He wakes up after 17 years uh, and it falls to Takafumi to kind of care for his uncle because he's the only living relative that's left. Uh, okay. uh, what is later revealed is that Oji-san has not just been in a coma, but has uh, his spirit... His spiritual self has been transported into another world whereby he has basically been a hero uh, and, you know, defending this other world from monsters and dragons and demon lords, etc., etc. Uh, and all of this is told to him by magic powers that Oji-san has retained in the current world. Um, Takafumi, who is a poor, broke student, uh, eventually houses his uncle. And in order to... Uh, pay the bills. They basically start a YouTube channel by abusing their uh, his uncle's um, his uncle's magical powers to kind of like oh, make okay. ends meet. Uh, this is a super tongue in cheek satirical look at the isekai genre, um, and and just like the whole geekdom that surrounds uh, uh, those those types of anime. Uh, it's super funny and really really tongue in cheek. Uh, the gags are hilariously funny. Uh, and it's very different and very kind of like strange uh, uh, to see something like this um, really kind of lean into the satire of it. I think it's probably the best thing that we've gotten from Isekai satire in recent time. Um, so go ahead and check it out. It's easy. It's an easy, breezy kind of watch. And uh, some of the stuff that they go through really is like laugh out loud. Uh, funny. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yep. Yeah. Outside of that, um, if you're looking for uh, just a quick mention for a couple, if you're you know looking for your fan service and all of that stuff that I've enjoyed, uh, that is a bit on the hornier, raunchier side of anime this season. Uh, my my stepmother's daughter is my ex. Is actually really really funny. Uh, with some okay. interesting character development. It sounds exactly what it sounds like. Uh, you can go ahead and check that out. 
engage kiss as well is also extremely funny uh if somewhat horny um so you can go ahead and check that out as well um but yeah that's kind of wraps up my summer 2022 anime corner for now nice. um yeah please go check out made in abyss if you haven't uh it is it's not going to be for everyone because there are a lot of like psychological elements and maybe some horror elements as well that you may not want to watch uh but yeah that's the best thing this season uh together with licorice recall and call of night are my top three picks uh and uh, it should suffice you as we go into a very very stacked fall season 2002 with uh the new uh, with bleach returning with um with Bleach returning, with Golden Kamui Season 4 returning, uh, yep. with Mob Psycho Season 3 returning, like this, uh, and Chainsaw Man debuting. Like There's a ton of stuff to look forward to next season. And we will be covering Spy that. Family returning. Spy Family. My Hero returning. Academia returning. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, we're going to fall season now. If you've got... Uh, there's a little bit of a break. Go ahead and catch up on uh, anything that you haven't watched in the summertime. Uh, but we'll cover all the good stuff that's coming out in fall uh, next Anime Corner. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, yeah, I'm very, very excited for uh, Mob Psycho, uh, which hasn't been around for several years now. Yeah. Um, Spy Family Part Two, of course, uh, coming out soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not super hyped about my hero anymore. I've sort of fallen off the fan yeah, wagon. Yeah, I, I, I caught but... a couple of episodes. Uh, well, the two episodes that are out already. It's okay. Oh, okay. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I'm curious to where they're gonna go with it. Um, it's it's. They're running out of ideas. It's what it feels like, uh, basically. Definitely. Yeah. Um, to wrap up this episode, though, another edition of Quick Hits Classics. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the classic, cult classic space opera, mm-hmm. Babylon 5. Um, this, was, this show was actually originally conceived in 1987 mm-hmm. by writer-producer J. Michael Struzensky, who came up with a concept for a television story that had not been tried before. Babylon 5 was conceived as a quote-unquote novel for television with a pre-planned five-year story arc. Mm -hmm. Each episode envisioned as a chapter, whereas contemporary television shows of the 80s and 90s uh, without fail tended to maintain the overall status quo, Mm -hmm. confining conflicts to individual episodes. Babylon 5 will feature story arcs which spanned multiple episodes, and even seasons. Believe it or not, this was a wild concept 40 years ago. TV historians are going to tell you that the current golden age of TV began with The Sopranos, The West Wing, Buffy, you know, proto-prestige dramas, because they kind of changed the format of serialized TV. I'm telling you, no. (laughs) It started with... It started with much, much, much earlier with Babylon 5. This show was also the very first show or the very first piece of on-screen media to use multimedia canon storytelling Mm. 20, 30 years before Lost did, before The Matrix did. There were tie-in novels, comic books, short stories, games, um, and they were all developed to play a significant canonical part in the overall story. This show was a game changer and more than that it was also fucking great with babylon 5 there will be no expense there would not have been a battlestar galactica reboot Mm -hmm. 
there would certainly not be Deep Space Nine, and we'll get into that yeah, later. Yeah, yep. <laughs> um, this kind of serious, gritty, serialized sci-fi had never been done on TV before. Forget sci-fi. This type of serious, gritty, serialized drama had never been done on TV before yeah. Babylon 5. Unfortunately, Babylon 5 never got the credit it deserved because many considered it, surprisingly, a rip-off of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. so dumb. A show that it had a heated rivalry with yeah. because they ended at the same time. Yep. In fact, it was the opposite because GMS has the receipts. Yep. It was, in fact, DS9 that copied Babylon 5. Court documents from a lawsuit <laughs> proved that Straczynski pitched the show to Paramount TV sometime <laughs> in 1989. Yep. He gave the network the series Bible, the pilot script, the artwork, and lengthy character background histories. They had discontent for a year, a full year before declining. Paramount then announced Star Trek Deep Space Nine only two months after Warner Brothers announced Babylon 5. If you've seen both shows and noticed startling similarities in their respective settings, dynamics, tones, and story arcs, this is why. Paramount obviously took Straczynski's blueprints and refashioned them within the Star Trek lore to create Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. Now look, I think me and Hardy both love Deep Space Nine. Yeah, we do. And, and, and I think like towards the later seasons of Deep Space Nine, when it got even better, it actually strayed far away from the Babylon 5 um, plot. Yeah, yeah, it did. I mean, it was only like the first few, first two seasons, I guess, where it was very similar to Babylon 5. And uh, the first season was the most egregious. Yeah, of course. Because it was uh, pretty much a carbon copy. Correct. Uh, but credit where credit is due. La. The foundations of DS9 were clearly plagiarized. 100%. Um, so, what is Babylon 5 about? Babylon 5 is set between 2257 and 2262, where Earth had become a unified government called the Earth Alliance. Mm -hmm. The EA, so to speak, had colonies scattered within the solar system and beyond due to the use of jump gates, which are artificial wormholes, uh, DS9 reference again, uh, which also allowed interstellar traveling. So, Context here. Ten, 10 years before the series began, mm -hmm. Earth was almost destroyed due to a war yep. mistakenly started with the Minbari race yep. during a first contact encounter. Mm -hmm. To avoid another major incident, the, a space station was created in a neutral space, a place where all major races could meet and through diplomatic contact from alliances or settle differences. Mm -hmm. Thus began the Babylon Project. Uh, the station in the series is huge. It's five miles long and accommodates approximately uh, 250,000 residents, a quarter of a million people live yep. there. Uh, parts of the station provide various atmospheres and gravities for alien species, uh, which is, I think is very interesting. Like most of the sci-fi shows we encounter don't do that. Um, along with humans, Babylon 5 is occupied by other races such as the Minbari, the Centauri, Narn, Vorlon, and other species from the League of Non-Aligned Worlds. Yep. So from the very beginning, we are told that there is an ancient alien race that means to destroy the galaxy and that the other races need to align to stop them. Mm. However, during this time, we will see internal struggles, which is the most interesting part of the show, internal struggles of the various races, including our own, um, to come together uh, and, and they, have, they must put all that shit aside and stand against uh, another race called the Shadows, like, which yeah. is the ancient race. Uh, major plot lines included Babylon 5's embroilment in this millennial 
cyclical conflict between these alien space races. Mm -hmm. But more interestingly, there were inter-race wars and intra-race wars amongst the newer races. Uh, we deal with the aftermaths, uh, we deal with civil wars, and we deal with the resulting upheaval of all these things. The series had a very large cast, and most of the actors remained for the entire five-year run. One notable cast change, however, was that the lead actor, the star of season one, yeah. Michael O'Hare, who played Commander Jeffrey Sinclair, yeah. was written out of the show yeah. after the first season. Um, O'Hare would, uh, of course, return in later seasons for a few episodes as a special yeah. guest star to wrap up his arc. However, he would never be a series regular again. Mm -hmm. The real reason for his departure no. would not be revealed until O'Hare's death in 2012. So what was it? Huh? I still don't know. So uh, during the filming of the first season of Babylon 5, uh -huh. Um, O'Hare began having paranoid delusions and hallucinations. Um, oh. So Straczynski offered to suspend production so that O'Hare could get you know, professional yep. psychological help. Um, O'Hare, however, declined because he feels that an interruption would put everyone that worked on the show at risk because any delays would eat up their budget and trigger a cancellation. Um, uh, so O'Hare decided that he would just finish the first season, leave. Uh, leave to seek treatment, and whenever you need me back to wrap to wrap me up, I'm I'm free for like a week or two or something like wow. that. So he he, yeah. Um, that that was the reason for the the lead actor to change mm. uh between season one and season two. So that was interesting here. Yeah. Um, so I've laid out kind of the bare blo bare bones plot, the context, the story of Babylon Five, mm -hmm. its nineties origins, its eighties conception mm -hmm. as one of the first serialized stories. I noticed how JMS described the show was exactly how David Simon described <laughs> The Wire thirty years later. Yeah. Uh, um, so. Hadi, uh, you watched the show back in the 90s, right? Uh, uh, what were your memories and thoughts of Babylon 5? Okay, so I watched the show in the 90s itself and another time in the early 2000s to mid-2000s. when I a DVD or something. Correct, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had like all five seasons. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I just had good memories of the show, you know. It was always a, that kind of like weekly, uh, like Thursday night television, that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I remember every Thursday night switching it on and then just watching this. Like, it was like on it after the news, you know, that kind of thing. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, and it was compelling in the sense that um, it had such a vast world. Mm. You know, and this was before like video games were, you know, at the stage that it is now, lah, you know, mm. where, you know, and exploring it through the character's eyes and all that was such a great... Um, I mean, even though it's just one station like, most of the time. Sure. Uh, but the CGI was fantastic, you know, for that time. You know, you had like space battles and all that that you only yep. saw on like movies like, uh, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek, right? And mm -hmm. they had this, this like kind of epic space battles that you don't see on TV. Mm. Yeah, because I think they were, the, 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 I think that time they were dealing with like new technology, that kind of thing. Like. Yes. Yeah. Um, and some of that long-form story required you to tune in every week. It was super new for that time. Super new. Yeah. It was the only show of this exactly. kind at that time. You know? yeah. But to me, yeah, to me, that was my first time experiencing it. So it was a TV novel, like, eventually, essentially, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. what struck me was how great this ensemble cast was. You know, how well they played off each other, how well, or rather tight the, the, the series felt as, uh, uh, going f um, as it progressed. It's a cohesive whole. You could tell they were not just making it up as yes, long yeah. like other shows. Which, yeah. which, you know, at that time it was like, oh, uh, we write it the next week, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it felt so tight. It felt so, uh, so, um, it, uh, to me it was uh, so revolutionary at that time, you know? Mm. 
and then as um as I went on, you know, and then as we delved in deeper into the law, uh, into the you know into the 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 myth, uh, the the legends of of you know the other older races, right? The older space races like the shadows and the um Volons. Volons and all that. It became yep. even. You know, it was like it became even bigger than I, 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 I once imagined. Yeah. Yep. So, so this was something that it, it, it didn't. It's not like it's a perfect show or anything like that. Far from it. But it was no, like nothing in the nineties was. Yeah. Perfect. You know, because a lot. Yeah, but it was so experimental. But then at the same time, it was so tight, and I, I, I was always captivated by how creative this show was. Yeah. You know? And and I feel that. Um, there were unfair comparisons to Star Trek, definitely. Everybody just assumed that Star Trek came up with the yeah, idea. Yeah, because first. Star Trek was the, the the you know TNG and all that came before it, lah. Yeah, yeah, but DS Nine specifically, as, such a ripoff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we love DS Nine yeah. also. We I love DS Nine yeah. too, like, No, 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 no this to them, them, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, by the the fifth, even the fifth season itself was a bit of um. It was the last season, right? If I'm not wrong. Yes, yes. Uh, the fifth season did. I feel here's some nitpicks uh, about the fifth yeah. season was they were they were trying to set up a bunch of spin-offs which didn't come to fruition. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I think that that uh kind of diluted the main Same. story a bit. That that was something yeah. that I felt about season five, that that mm. was the it felt a bit weaker just because it felt stretched out like you're doing too many things at uh, at once uh, yes. But again, okay. To to be fair, I have watched Babylon five like ten years mm-hmm. ago la. That was the last time I watched Babylon five. Uh, sure. But from what I remember, it was a good time. Uh, the characters were intriguing. They had a great recurring cast of characters. Really? Uh, you know, it was such a long list, man. Yep, yep, um, yep. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry, sorry. Go, go ahead. Yeah, so at the end of the day, uh, every character they introduced brought new, you know, new um, world building, new um, exploration into this world that was very interesting. And, you know, Event, it, it, and it, and Babylon 5 was one of those shows that inspired a lot of other sci-fi stuff la. you know apart yeah. from the rip of, uh, of, of, of DS9 um, it clearly inspired DS9 correct, la, correct. if you want to use the word inspired, inspired which yeah. is uh, but then, you know the expands BSG exactly. stuff like that yeah. uh, into the late 2000s until today there's still you know there, there are things like Mass Effect the game right yeah sure it's, it's inspired by Babylon 5's thing where there's this older race coming in to go and you know, mm-hmm. want to destroy the rest of the, you know, that yep. kind of thing, lah. You know, um. So yeah, so, uh, Babylon Five is one. Of, I feel is one of those shows that, um, really, um, really, shaped my love for sci-fi. Apart from Star Wars, mm. apart from Star Trek, Babylon Babylon Five holds a very special place, uh, in my uh, in my heart, lah. Yeah, yeah, specifically. Um, I often use this term to describe it to new people who have not seen Babylon 5. Mm. Um, the show was Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones in terms of its <laughs> political scope. No, that's a good way of describing um, it. Babylon 5 was never just content to tell, to tell one story. No. The show often devoted a run of episodes to dealing with one particular subject and then tying a temporary bow around it and then moving on to something else, another political issue, another so- uh, social issue. Although you always knew that the dangling plot, plot threads from, be, you know, from previous seasons or previous episodes would never stay unresolved mm. forever. They will always come back on it. So over the course of a season, you might see mini arcs about 
Mars's bid for independence from Earth, mm-hmm. uh, something that the expense took a lot from mm-hmm. um, the Centauri invading the Nan home world, mm-hmm. uh, the all-compassing war between the Shadows and the Volons before they were revisited the following year in different ways or even much later. Um, it was Westeros in space before George R. R. Martin had even published his first A Song of Ice and Fire novel. Yep. Um, it was a show that rewarded viewers who tuned in for every installment. Babylon 5 was a show purpose-built for the streaming and binge-viewing age, trapped in an era of broadcast and cable uh, where people didn't like this sort of thing. Furthermore, it was also a more realistic take on Star Trek. Uh, We all, myself included, wish our future would be like Star Trek, a utopia. But if a universe like Star Trek does exist, chances are things would play out more like Babylon 5 than the next generation. Um, amazingly, right, it's big existential threat, the shadows, yeah. right, as you mentioned, Hardy, yeah. which were the big bad that forces all of the galaxy's races to seize their external and internal conflicts to unite. They were actually soundly defeated, not in season five, nope. but in the middle of season three. Mm-hmm. Remember, the show's five seasons were planned ahead of time, so this was always the intent. While lesser shows, Cough Cough GOT, uh, would have saved this confrontation for the big climax, Babylon 5 chose to spend the remaining two seasons dealing with the aftermath of the conflict. Yes, so many other shows end when the big bad is defeated. But what happens, but what happens after yes. the final battle? What are the costs of the war? Um, what is the aftermath? Babylon 5 is smart enough to know that oftentimes the aftermath can be more fraught yes, than the battle. Exactly. You know, for example, due to the shadows, the Earth Alliance became xenophobic and fell into totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, they became fascist and they became the villains of season 4, our humans. Uh, what about all the bad blood that existed prior to the War of the Shadows? Would such generational conflicts uh, you know, uh, cease just because the, the warring races worked together one time? Um, not likely. Um, or how about the planets that were decimated by the shadows? How would their governments or societies recover and change? Exactly. Wouldn't there be periods of strife, of poverty, of economic turmoil during the process of rebuilding? Uh, what about the PTSD of the survivors? What about the moral compromises and promises that had to be made to defeat the shadows? Wouldn't they come to bite you in the ass once the dust settles? Babylon 5 deals with all of this and so much more. I mean, sure, its budget was small and its effects looked like PlayStation 1 graphics and sure, some of the acting was, I'm going to say, not great. Uh, But the storytelling, the writing was uh, a pure masterclass. Specifically that, you know. The show itself also had a bunch of spin-offs. Uh, there was a series called Crusade and many, many, many more TV movies, uh, which were all fairly solid. So you can check them out as well after you Crusade watch Babylon 5. Cool, yeah, Crusade was yeah. cool. Uh, it was also cancelled after one season, yeah, uh, unfortunately. Exactly. Uh, but all this extra stuff, Crusade and all the other TV shows and TV movies, is kind of non-essential, to be honest. Babylon 5 is the main cause. And it was and remains to this day one of the greatest space operas in the history of sci-fi TV. Uh, yeah, um, Hadi, any final thoughts about Babylon 5 before we wrap up this episode of genre? I mean, for the people who are a lot younger than us, right? Uh, mm-hmm. If you know, if you love Star Wars, Star Trek, that kind of sci-fi stuff. like I think they love Star Wars, they wouldn't necessarily love Babylon 5. But... I mean, yeah, but I think it's something that you should explore, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. where all of this 
all this great sci-fi stuff we have today kind of mm. came from lah in terms of TV. Oh yeah. Mm. You you see uh, you see Endor trying so hard to be a Babylon 5 but failing. <laughs> Dif- different lah. <laughs> different lah. <laughs> let's let's give it a chance. Come on. <laughs> sure, okay. It's too early lah. We'll it's see. too early. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, great show. Yeah, great show. Um, uh, recommend. I think it's recommend in, to yeah. to binge once in a while, uh, You know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's in my my Mount Rushmore alongside um hilariously enough, this Space Nine, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fast Escape, and of course, oh uh, God, yeah, and of course, uh, TNG. Uh, I think are my top four. Uh, space opera, so so to speak. That's good. There, yeah. there are a lot more. There are a lot more good ones out there. Like I said, Battlestar Galactica. The expense uh, are all very, very good as well. But Mount Rushmore, um, I think I agree with yeah. Mount Rushmore. Yeah, definitely. I, although I'm also never sure whether TNG is strictly a space opera because it doesn't really de- deal with you know character arcs and things like that. Not as much. Yeah. Um, not as much. So maybe if I had to replace TNG, I'll probably replace it with the, the BSG to 2003. Oh wow! Really. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel the expense is as good as BSG two thousand three. Okay, okay. The expense would be in my top five lah, but Mount Rushmore is four, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, BSG two thousand three. That was a, yeah. That was another classic, great classic. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though it's a reboot yeah. lah. Yeah, it's it's crazy that something that came out after two thousand. It is wild like that. I can refer to it as a classic. Yeah. So much time has passed. No, but, <laughs> yeah. No, but what is impressive is also bad. I feel that two thousand three BSG is. A lot better than its original. No shit. <laughs> um. Also, I mean, part of the reason is because 2003 was such a fraught time. Mm-hmm. I mean, BSG was about the war on terror, right? I mean, essentially, that like, was the allegory. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and the at that time, it felt like it affected all of us, which it did. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the fear, the fear mongering, and everything. Uh, and BSG handled that very, very well uh, from a political standpoint. Uh, anyways, yeah, that wraps it up for this episode of Genre Equality. We'll be back next month for Genre Equality 59, mm-hmm. where we'll talk about She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, mm-hmm. uh, the new season of Rick and Morty, which is... Boy, is it back on form, it I'm shocked to say. <laughs> but uh, Rick, make Rick and Morty great again, and it is great again. Uh, Hadi and myself will revisit Star Trek Lower Decks, which is back Yay! for season 3. It's been fun um, so Hadi... Dude, it's been great. Yeah. Um, Hadi will review Black Adam by himself, hey. uh, being the, our, our resident rock um, rock rock reviewer. Yes, I think. that's yeah. right. Anything to rock, like I will assign yes, to you. Yes, no problem. Uh. And if it's sci-fi and fantasy, it's in. Yeah. Yep. Yes, you know. Um, for my quick hits, I'll be delving into a, the new season of Lost East Bookies, uh, which I really, really like. Mm-hmm. There is a new uh, Henry Selick, uh, Jordan Peele oh, joint yeah. uh, called Wendell and Wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't know who Henry Selick is, he did a uh, Nightmare for Christmas, Corpse Bride, things like that. Uh, there is a Marvel one-off called Werewolf by Night, which looks really, really fun. It's like mm-hmm. a throwback to Universal monster movies. Uh, Halloween ends its franchise question mark with <laughs> Halloween ends uh, the movie uh, on Hulu there is a reboot of Hellraiser coming out soon so I'm going to check that out but the main two topics the dueling prequels mm. the dueling fantasy prequels mm-hmm. uh, House of the Dragon mm. versus the Lord of the Rings the Rings of Power oh. um, this is I think I mean it's a 12 round fight la, but as a at you know round six um, right no, now it, it feels like a knockout already man it it, it feels like a knockout yeah. is incoming like, yeah. pretty much like, there's, there's been a bunch of 10-8 rounds uh, so far yeah, it's been 10-8 10-8 round already I mean yeah. like yeah. oh my god 
Yeah, I mean, uh, they started out pretty close, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but House of the Dragon feels like you know that that uh, Mayweather who just took it easy for the first two episodes or the first two rounds. Yeah, you know? and it came and brown then like, brown over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, poor thing. I, I had such high hopes for Rings of Power. Hopefully, it turns around, lah. But uh, uh, I hope. Yeah, so I don't. I don't so have any hopes, yeah. Yeah. I had that feeling when I watched the the Witcher season one, like the the amateurish writing, that kind of vibe. Ah, uh, I know. Yeah. Uh, so, sorry, I said you were saying. Sorry, I I think you're yeah, reaching you're the saying? point of no return in the seasons already. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah, Rings of Power is not doing well. Dude, I fast forwarded so many please, so many parts of Ring of Power in the last episode. Uh, mm. uh, oh, this is so boring. I don't really give a yes. shit. Yes, the thing is, House of the Dragon is a good show. Like we're not diminishing House of the Dragon, no, no, but no. House of the Dragon is kind of fighting a couple of jobbers in direct comparison. Yeah. Yeah. House of the Dragon is fighting the memory of Season 8 yes. of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And it's fighting Rings of Power. And it it, it looks like a world beater right now like, because its main competition is like rubbish. <laughs> oh my god, Season 8 is even worse than Ring of Power, okay? Um, I don't know if I go that far. <laughs> Just saying. I don't know if I go that far like that GOT Season 8 is worse than Rings of Power because Rings of Power is genuinely one of the worst things I've seen <laughs> so far. It's true. And I feel very, very bad for the, the incredible craftsmen that are working exactly. on it. Exactly. Like the VFX artists and, mm-hmm. and the costuming and everything. It looks so expensive. Yeah, yeah. And the craftsmen are obviously killing it. And I feel bad for exactly. them like, that yeah. writing has failed them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, me too, man. Ah, oh, well, uh, well. We'll get more in-depth about that uh, next month. Uh, what are you uh, each most excited about to talk oh, about uh, before we leave? Oh. Okay, that, that's that's pretty interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's actually not interesting. Like, it's obvious. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I'm actually. Um, I know that this. I think that you all don't agree with me, but I actually enjoy She Help. Uh, I love She Help. Oh, okay. I enjoy She Help too, man. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yes. I mean, she, like I said, She Help is also fighting like all these other. I mean, I I actually think She Hulk is better than House of the Dragon, and I'm gonna give my <laughs> argument as to why. Why? Yeah. yeah. On on the next show or no? Uh, on the next show, lah. But like in in summary, lah, She Hulk knows what it is. Yes, mm. and leans into and it. In. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Man, and o- also, She Hulk is like the the best character in TV that I've seen in like the last <laughs> fifteen years, uh, which is m- Madison. Wow, Madison, yeah. she's the best. Uh, yeah, with a, with, a a y. with two ends and a Y, yeah. and, but it's not what you think it is. <laughs> yeah, I kept yep. thinking, where do you think it was going to be? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Uh, um, anyways, uh, what about you, Isa? Uh, I think I, I'm I'm gonna enjoy talking about She-Hulk for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yep. more importantly, I'm I'm very curious to talk about Rick and Morty, the new season. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because last season wasn't great, and I am curious where we end up at the end of this new season. Or oh, whatever mm. this new part is, like I don't know if we're technically going by seasons anymore. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, because like it's been it, it has been feeling kind of up and down. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm curious about where it ends. I'm curious about like discussing like why it's got it picked up again and so on and so forth. Mm. Yeah, uh, the Rick and Morty showrunners strike me as very genius. Don't get me wrong; they're all geniuses, mm. But like, they seem like very smart people who don't take criticism. Mm. And then the criticism for season five was so strong that they had no choice but to take notice and cost correct a bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And season six is the result of that. Like, I, I personally am most looking forward to Lost Spookies, but that's just my thing. Yeah. It's 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 my favorite thing that I'm watching on TV right now. Uh, so yeah, that wraps it up. Uh, till next time, this has been Hit Zero. Hey,
Am I, sir? Goodbye, guys. Goodbye. Ciao.